and welcome to the third We Swim Wild podcast. I'm Dr Christian Dunn and I'm Laura Owen Sanderson. And today we are going to be discussing a little bit of a roundup of the year because it is the new year and so we'll be looking back at the year and we also have an amazing interview with Cliff Capono, the professional surfer, scientist and ocean conservationist over in Hawaii, which is why we're recording this in the dark because over in Hawaii it is coming up to early morning and we're going to catch up with him in about 10 minutes. And I'm really looking forward to that. He's an amazing chap and doing amazing stuff. So it's going to be great speaking to him. But before we, we do that, uh, Laura, you know, this year has been a crazy year um, with all things COVID, et cetera, et cetera. But also it's been really active for We Swim Wild. So what's been what's been the highlight for you or one of the highlights for you? Uh, one of the highlights would be starting the Pobledo Education Programme. So we managed to get that on Coast and Country in Pembrokeshire, but we're moving up to Gwyneth next year at the start of next year and they'll be traveling down the coast with that program so that's been a really good program highlighting the issues of microplastics and getting more young people out into the water safely yeah it seems absolutely brilliant what can people get involved with it or how can they get involved or find out more information about that and find out more information then go to the website and they can um, request or get in touch with your school and we've had lottery funding and some grant funding to deliver the programs we've got scheduled for next year and if you're interested we can look at ways of supporting a program in your area so just get in touch brilliant that's absolutely fantastic work oh i think for me one of the highlights i'm going to ask you what about you yeah for me one of the highlights but also perhaps low light as well i don't know if that was that's the right word but was cop 26 um so i I went to cop 26 as a representing Bangor university and obviously everyone had massive hopes for it you know it was you know it was expressed as you know our last chance saloon and all that kind of terminology was being used big kind of hopes for it in terms of cutting carbon emissions and also using nature to kind of help us get out of the problems that we're, we're facing when it comes to climate change and all the effects of that. Did it deliver? Did the governments around the world agree to strong enough targets? The answer was probably no, unfortunately, um, which was disappointing. There were some really po- good positives to come out of it um, when it comes to methane, deforestation, some of the finance was was positive um there were steps as well to actually make sure that nature-based solutions were going to become really more part of the 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 weaponry that we have to fight climate change so that was really good and that was the first time that has really been talked about at a cop um but was it as successful as we wanted it gonna have to say no it wasn't so highlight and also low light i'm afraid what um what was the shortcomings for you in specific i I think was the fact that the countries did not agree to their individual actions to cut greenhouse gas emissions by enough to get um significant uh promises i think that was that was the crucial issue we were all hoping that the countries would come up with really kind of tough um uh emission cuts which they were going to promise to do and they just kind of didn't come up with them there were other there were positives i'm not going to deny there were positives mm-hmm. uh and that was great um you know say with methane particularly was good deforestation but some of the, the two big players russia and china were shelf fell short of what they promised and also although india looked at the start of cop that they were going to come good 
towards the end, it looked like they were falling off as well. And then some of the terminology of the final document, um, it, it lost some of the strength that we needed when it came down to, to stopping the use of fossil fuels. That All that terminology was very much kind of toned down uh, and not what we needed at this stage. We needed it to be really ramped up. Um, so now we're going to have to come back again next year and kind of really push uh, uh, countries to kind of cut their greenhouse or promise to cut their greenhouse gas emissions um, by a lot more than they are doing. So that that was that was that was negatives. Um, so, <laughs> Look at the positives. Yeah. Any indeed, positive? And also, I am wearing obviously a festive hat because it is Christmas season. But I have noticed that you are not wearing a festive hat. Why? Why aren't you wearing a festive hat? Because they're made of um, synthetic fibers. Christian. However, <laughs> no, long, I'm that out. Um, as long as you use them many, many times, it's okay. And this hat, this is actually an heirloom. I think it was passed down from grandfather to Poundland. Poundland. No, I'm, I'm sure we've got one somewhere in this house, but we don't currently. We have a snowman one, but it would be off the screen, so I haven't worn it. Talking of sustainability and Christmas. Is there anything you do in particular to make sure that your Christmas is as sustainable as possible? Uh, well, we try and get, you know, reuse things as where possible. We don't bother with cards. We never have a humbug because they just like, we just use them once. Um, what do we do sustainable? We use the packings, make decoration, you know, things like that. But most of the stuff we've got, we've had for years. So, um what do you do? Yeah, well, this year we've made a real effort, as every year we always do, really. But this yeah. year has been really interesting because there's been a lot of products which we'd want to buy anyway, like crackers, for example, you know, like pulling crackers, you know. Oh, yeah. Kind of there, there are some now which are completely plastic free. And so we've made sure that we've we, we've bought those ones. Um, and there's the other thing as well, mince pies. Obviously, as you can probably tell, I like pies, especially mince pies. <laughs> and, uh, and Iceland, the, the supermarket chain Iceland, has now got plastic-free mince pies. So when you open the packet, you know, and you, and you pull out the little kind of used to, pull out a little plastic yeah. tray with all the mince pies on, they are now, it's no plastic there. It's all paper, and it's absolutely fantastic. And they are the only, I'm sh I think, so I, yeah. I could be wrong here, but they're the only manufacturer that makes plastic-free mince pies, and they're delicious too. So what more could you want? Despite um, their so adverts, their advertising campaign, which was, you know, that... Should have gone to Iceland. Um, they've actually done quite a lot for plastic free. Oh, phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, they were one of the first uh, supermarket, well, the first supermarket chain to come out and say that they were going to go plastic free with all their own products um, by, oh, I can't remember the date, but within around about five years. So that would think we're now probably about three years into it. Um, and uh, uh, Richard Walker, the, the, the CEO of Iceland, the boss of Iceland, has written a book about this and kind of does lots of talks. I saw that, yeah. And they've had huge problems in turning some of their products plastic free because a lot of their products, you know, go in the microwave, go in the oven, whatever it may be. And they've had to invent, they've had to kind of redevelop new products to allow their um, their products to be plastic free. And they've invested a, a phenomenal amount of money into this. And so I think they should be given full support for doing it. And so yeah. their mince pies, tasty and plastic free. Tasty so and plastic free. When I did um, some work with some cafes and things on going plastic free, um, I found out down the chain, they thought all their products were all plastic free. And I went down the chain 
down to the factory and all they were doing was taking the plastic off and then giving it them. <laughs> so uh, all kudos to Iceland for actually going the extra mile and making it in-house. That's brilliant. Definitely. So, right. I mean, that's one thing that you can do this Christmas is really look out for those products which are plastic free. So many crackers look like them, they're plastic free, but they're not. You have to really go for ones that genuinely are plastic free. I make my own. Just put in oh, a little that's alcohol that's bottle and wrap them in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cliff Capono is texting me saying he's ready. So we're going to head on over to speak to Cliff now. And uh, a Merry Christmas Indeed. and a Happy New Year. I wonder if he's going to be wearing a hat. Hello. Yeah. Why, why aren't you wearing a festive hat, Cliff? Oh, I got my festive jacket on. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, all that matters. Me too. Yeah, you're, the, you're the first people I'm talking to this morning, so it's... Uh, wow. Hopefully it's, uh, it doesn't sound too weird. <laughs> perfect. No, I'm going to talk to Christian and that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we won't keep you too long, Cliff. We really appreciate you coming on. So thanks. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, right. So I know you as a professional surfer, ocean advocate and conservationist. But for those who don't know you, do you want to give us a bit of background um, about how you kind of got into what you do and what you do? Yeah, um, shucks, this is always like a hard question. Like, what do you do? Because I don't have like a, a I feel like a real job. Uh, I don't like clock in nine to five. So um, I guess I try to tell stories and the stories that I tell involve surfing and science. And usually like the main character of these stories are the planet or the ocean. So I'm just trying to like, be a supporting supporting character in telling these stories and yeah that's kind of what I do I don't know if that makes sense but but, but you're a surfer and you're a scientist how yes. do you think those two things marry up I feel for me in like as a surfer I again in surfing I have a unique role in that I don't uh, necessarily compete on the tour to try to win competitions um, my surfing uh, my role in professional surfing is to, I think, celebrate a uh, lifestyle of surfing. And in science, I'm not like in a lab all the time trying to find cures to things. So, but I do get supported through grants and through different institutions. So it's, it's like, a, um, it's almost like, Right now, I try to communicate that my passion is to share stories about the environment and whoever wants to be a part of that story as like another supporting character, like they can invest in some of these like stories that I'm telling. And it's a it's kind of like a unique occupation, I guess. And but surfing and science, it definitely is seems like super like tangential to each other. Like there's not a lot of like surfers that do science like formal science like very little professional like surfers that do formal science and there's very few uh scientists that do surfing on like a like a very intense level so it's just like it's cool to show that at different parts of like society like what people think there can be like this synergy that can be used together or as like uh say you go on a surf trip to like a really exotic surf destination, you can find uh, like a way to conserve it through some new technology that's coming out with one of your peers in the science world. And when you connect the two, it just, everyone gets really excited because everyone wants to go 
to like exotic destinations and stuff like that. You're talking about communicating there, you're telling stories. Um, are people listening? I mean, I think that's that's a crucial thing. Like, you know, many of us are trying to get the message across that we should be, you know, more sustainable, etc. Sometimes we worry that people aren't listening. What do you think? Are people listening to the stories you're telling? I think they're listening to Cliff. Give us some tips, Cliff, is what he's asking. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't I don't know if there if people, I don't know how many people are really listening. Like, what is the I don't know what the metric is for that. Like, is it Instagram or YouTube, or, which I, I don't have these massive followings in across social media. Um, you use a lot of film, don't you, to tell stories? Yeah, I try to use the like visual storytelling as much as written storytelling. I, I like to use them all, you know, even uh, I like to actually tell stories most by word of mouth. Like to me, that's very traditional <clears throat> as like a, a Hawaiian person, <clears throat> as like a, a Hawaiian person, <clears throat> excuse me. But yeah, like I, I don't really know how many people are listening, but it's, it gives me a sense of like gratitude when someone like CNN or like ABC calls to like hear a story that isn't really just my story. Like, and, and these aren't my stories, like they're my ancestors stories that I'm just trying to like keep putting forward, you know, so it's just, it you know, I think in my community, we've dealt with a lot of like uh, intergenerational trauma and historical trauma through colonialization and things like that. So there, growing up, there's always been maybe a little bit of insecurity in my value and the value of my people. So when a big network calls and, you know, says, we really want to hear what you think about this. And I can tell them like, it's not mine, it's actually my people's. And for them to still want to hear about it, it just, it's, it's like a healing process where I can start shedding all of that um, kind of animosity and like things like that. So it's uh, personally for me, it makes me feel really good uh, selfishly, but also to it. Um, yeah, like I, I know that there's there is evidence that there are people that want to hear about indigenous perspectives, which um, are very environmental in themselves, you know. Is that does that bring you up to when you're talking about um, uh, your your activism that you do indigenous activism? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so like, um, so for me, I believe as I was taught that uh, indigeneity or being indigenous, it's it's not about where you belong to, but it's about belonging to somewhere. Like it's about belonging to a place, and it's not about color of skin or you know, whatever it's, it's about that connection to place and that, um, that can change. Like, I, I think as an indigenous person, you can have changes in this place, but the, the indigeneity is that you have sustained connection over a long period of time to somewhere. So for me, my people have been in these islands for about 2000 years and that, um, connection to the place has formed a strong identity of who we are. And even for myself, like, uh, it's, it's just, it's hard for me to separate me. I, I don't know if this is going to come out like weird or mystical or whatever, but you know, when I, when I look at the trees or the rocks, like I, I see them as like a part of me in a way, like a family member. And it does like when the hotels like get built and when like even land is just cleared for parking lots, it, it there is like a sting that you can't really express and it's not like oh that would have been beautiful or all oh, that sad it's like it's a deep like a kind of like a pain and I don't know how to describe it I don't want to sound like 
weird about it you know but it's, it's just there you know it's like when you you know I think maybe it's similar to like when you see someone lose a family member and you're kind of like you got that feeling inside like oh, I don't really want to see that you know you, you kind of you don't want to get bummed out it, it's just a med, ma major bummer so so yeah, the, I get that. The, where where we live is really rural still, but if you want to explain, so where you are, I've heard I've never been to Hawaii, but I obviously know it's a massive tourist destination. Mm. Is it? Mm. Is there any places that are left unspoiled? Kind of not by tourism. Yeah, there, there's a lot of places that are like unspoiled, but we are afraid to share them just because we've seen like Waikiki. It's like, I mean, Waikiki is we all heard of it and we know it. It's just like this. Waikiki was this beautiful um, like wetland community with these ponds and agriculture and like fertile oceans and land right there. Like it, it was just this insane like water metropolis there of people. And, you know, the, the colonizers came in and then they, they decided to actually take away all that water that existed um, you know, like the name Waikiki, it describes the type of water that existed there, fresh water. It was like these big pools. It's like, a, um, I don't know, imagine like these just waterways that were throughout this like wetland, you know, on White Sand Beach. It just was this crazy place. But um, for whatever reason, the engineers at the time who were in control of that area decided to uh, consolidate all that waterways and make like a canal. I don't know if they wanted to make it like uh, Venice, you know, people like going through whatever so it really kind of messed up the ecology of that space and um they they claimed that this was better it's like the it was better for the people and really it just disrupted the ecology so tremendously where if you you start to move um different freshwater and saltwater relationships in island systems then you start to uh, kind of disenfranchise the wildlife there so that, that's pretty much what happened. And you start to get an unbalanced system, mostly because the fresh water plays such an important role, not just on the land, but also in the sea. So the coral reefs started to be affected, the animals that live there started to be affected, and then they started to uh, dredge out um, different coral patches for long line um, import of cargo and ships. So like it's been completely manipulated, like ecologically speaking, and we have other spaces here um, and I live on the eastern shore of the Big Island, which is the most eastern uh, island, and we don't very have many, many tourists in our part of the island. And where I live, there's uh, 700 families that live here. So it's like we were in a small town just north of like the big town. So yeah, it's like a it's a beautiful place. Like I, I that's why I live here. I'm from here. So. Um, Really yeah it exists it exists you know I just it's it's scary to talk about it even on this you know like interview it's like uh someone's like where is that okay I want to go there you know which it's not like I, we're I, like no, I, no, we get asked that about swim spots and then they get kind of lots of people go there and then they get trampled or you know flora and fauna and yeah so yeah, it's, and keep it's hard place. it's hard like even in social media it's like you know what do you yeah. there's people who are like kind of weird about saying where you're from you know like I, I even to a point where it's like sometimes I don't know if I can really say like where I'm from publicly you know you want to say oh but I'm celebrating this natural beauty it can help along with the conversation of protection but then what if it brings more 
uh, footprint, you know, human footprint and traffic. So it's, it was a lot easier to do that. I think when I was traveling a lot more because people didn't really know where I was. And now that I'm like, everyone sees me at home all day long, kind of <laughs> like, with like COVID and stuff. They're probably like, where, where, where was that wave? Or, you know, where was that waterfall? And I'm kind of like, oh, I was like in Costa Rica. And they're like, no, you've been home for two years. <laughs> it's, it's in Hilo. It's <laughs> obviously you protect what you love. Mm. So obviously it's, it's why you've gone into conservation, I guess. But how important is that indigenous knowledge that's passed down mm. about these places to you um, in the work that you do now with coral? Yeah. Yeah, like, um, yeah, it's funny because like, uh, I'm not really formally trained in like conservation or like ecology, like my formal training is in uh, like molecular biosciences and analytical chemistry. So it's kind of funny because all the people in my like cohorts of study, they all went on to like Colgate or like uh, Exxon or like <laughs> all these like super high end tech worlds of like chemistry to like make oil and stuff. Uh, and I'm like, I just want to surf at the end of the day. Like that was like my main thing. Like, how do I figure out how to surf? Because uh, from like a indigenous standpoint, surfing is, is like, is also a part of our identity. Yeah. Like um, we have very um, deep roots in uh, wave sliding or standing up on, on wave on boards and surfing waves and being a part of the energy. So for me, like it, it was like an indigenous um thing that I wanted to do and also to throughout our like um kind of the disruption of our like economic and social like shifts and things like that surfing was a way that native people a lot of times retain their agency or their ability to like uh feel like they can move across the world uh, in a sovereign state and for me surfing was definitely that like I, I began surfing very young and it's been given to me by my family but it's also helped me to elevate my um, my social standing, I guess, here in the islands. Uh, education, though, was always this other thing, too, that was told you can elevate your social uh, status if you get educated in the Western way. So it's like, and I think that deals with a lot of like the way our people were at, maybe even like 20 years ago, believing that Western education was superior to like an indigenous uh, perspective. So, which is why for me, I tried to retain both. It, it really maybe was, I like to say, I really love surfing. I really love science, but I think if I have to be truly honest, I think I just didn't want to be in the situation I was in and I didn't want to live how I like lived growing up. So like I seen these two ways as a way to get out and they were purposeful. It wasn't like I was like selling drugs, you know what I mean? Like it felt like I could kind of reach that same level of like party time, uh, but it wasn't at the expense of like hurting people. So that's why I kind of just went all in with this. And, you know, now I think it's shifting. I, I believe that there is a strong value across the world of people investing into indigenous knowledge systems, which for me, I'm just like, I don't know, like maybe I got lucky, you know, like I could have chose so much different things, like, but I feel like right now in this moment of time when maybe I need um, like economic support, like I have this, you know, 25 year education based in surfing and in science 
and indigenous knowledge that is just kind of like maybe a buzzword right now. I hope it's not because like for, for our communities, we don't, this has been around for like thousands of years. Other indigenous communities, like, I mean, in, in Australia, it's like 10,000 year stories of like people walking out to Lizard Island and stuff. Like they know the reef by walking on it. Like to me, that just like blows my mind where like uh, here we're kind of fresh on the, because I mean, back in before where we came, we came from these islands in Tahiti before. So we know our longer ancestral stories, but just on this, like where I feel as like Hawaiian people, we're still learning how to, just walk lightly and interact and it's been 2000 years you know so like uh yeah going on and do, again. do you think that indigenous knowledge is now being accepted encouraged and appreciated when it comes to say conservation are people you know is is the western side of things are they wanting that knowledge now and are they appreciating it Oh, yes. Yeah. Sorry. The question was about conservation. So I'll get to that. And then I'm going to get to if I think that people could uh, see the value in the conservation. Yes, I do. Like, I think, um, I think in terms of, uh, so my background, I applied it to conservation because waves are a part of that conversation, you know, so like I love surfing and science was a way for me to keep on surfing. And if I can keep surfing through protecting these places that I surf at, like, it's just, purposeful and it, it's super fun you know like I, I really don't want to over over it like talk about it I know I talked about some deep stuff before but like at the end of the day like um you know through that like desire to get out of where I'm from I found so much like a joy in surfing and so much joy in science that now if I can make it my career I'm, I'm, I'm just doing it and uh, environmental space is is just a great place to contribute towards and conservation specifically although I know there's not a lot of economic resources in conservation in contrast to like medicine, which is why like I did my formal training was in things where like um, medicine contribute a lot of money. The industry that I learned in is way more uh, lucrative than the conservation space. So like big oil, big pharma, um, those things like tech, that's where I got trained in. But then now I'm bringing those uh those understandings into conservation because I feel like society's kind of like lame that way where they don't support the things that we need the most. So I kind of like backdoored the situation. And then now I'm starting to see like, yes, I do believe like um, the indigenous perspectives are being uh, accepted into the conservation spaces. And I think even more so when they recognize that there's indigenous peoples that are learning highly sophisticated forms of technology that can be applied to conservation through an indigenous lens. Like that's almost like compounding it and making it even more attractive to the conservation spaces. That being said, I think there's a, a very ba a balance we need to think about in conservation that it doesn't, conservation doesn't become this new form of colonialism where we go to these indigenous systems and we pull from it, but we're not providing anything and kind of like feeling like, oh, but it's for the planet. Like you, you got, you should be, you should nail yourself to the cross for everyone else. Cause everyone else like kind of messed it up, you know, like that, that, you know, that's not really, it's not really the way I, I feel it should work. You know, there's these people and these communities that have been stewards and guardians of this knowledge that has a value now that maybe we don't know how to quantify. Um, but they're expected just to give it to everyone for the planet. And that's a very altruistic 
way of thinking about it. And it may be beneficial for everyone, but it's hard as a human to think like everyone ate all their savings for winter and you, you, you ration and you're hungry and you, you, you're disciplined. And then when it comes down, everyone now is like, well, we'll all die if you don't give us some of your winter stock. And it's like, okay, I guess now, and it's, it's really, it's not enough, you know, just one indigenous communities ideas of how to protect their area. It's not enough. Like it's going to require all these different <clears throat> indigenous peoples from around the world working together. And as a collective, that's a very powerful thing. But conservationists sometimes in large conservation organizations sometimes forget that and are like, no, but we're elevating you. We're telling you that you guys are important. We're saying these stories are important. It's like, okay, if they're important, what's the dollar value on it? If Coral Reef bring in approximately $30 million worth of economic stimulation annually within Oahu alone, then protecting that, say we take 11% of that economic value and apply it to our indigenous communities. Oh, wait, no, 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 we, we, were, we don't have that kind of money. We're just a conservation organization. It's like, so are we, and we have zero money. We actually have negative, you know, because a lot of our resources have been illegally taken from us, you know? So it's like, how do we have these conversations and not seem as like dicks, you know, that we're like, no, you don't get our knowledge because we want to elevate it. But for me, that's what I've been trying to work on is showing that we have the infrastructure and we're developing our own uh, knowledge uh, systems that we can communicate on the global like stage without the need for a specific organization to come to us and say, we can tell your story. Like we don't really need that. We appreciate the collaboration, but we, we do also understand that there's value in it. And, you know, the way we maybe invest into our resources or how we manage our resources is different so even with me like the people who support me you know like the great people like hydroflask obviously you know like an investment from hydroflask into the work that i'm doing i communicate with them that you know this is going back into my community like every dollar you're putting into my conversation it's going into like from dog food to you know, seeds to surfboard, like whatever it is, like this is helping my community. It stays like kind of here. So it's like, I like to be, like to articulate that we, we have just a different way of how we manage our things, you know, and I'm not perfect. Like uh, there's a lot of issues that I'm trying to find solutions to in my own uh, environmental impact. But like, again, when we ask for financial resources, a lot of times it's not just to like drive Hummers and like party all night, you know, like we're <laughs> like partying all night on our canoes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's all about striking the balance by the sounds of things. Yeah, trying to and have having fun and not like trying to like overly think it, but it, it now having been like, uh, like I didn't leave Hawaii until I was 25, you know, like I, I just like, didn't want to move anywhere else. I didn't care about anywhere else. It was so Hawaii centric. And I didn't really know the way the world worked at all. And I was comfortable in it being kind of off the grid and being in my own world, getting educated. And, and really some of my first drives to get education was um, outside of making my family proud and feeling a sense of like responsibility and obligation. It was this idea that when some foreigner came with science degrees and they told me I can't be on the beach because of some scientific policy, I could 
shut them down. So it was like kind of a, uh, maybe not the best motivation <laughs> to get like a science degree, but, uh, well, once I went, went away and, and, you know, I got my degrees and like met people around the world, I, I feel like it's, there's an ignorance, which is not, you know, an excuse it's not justifiable, but there is this huge like ignorance. I think that um, there's it presents an opportunity to to share that. Look, just because like you're you think you're doing something good for the planet, you might not be. And humans are a part of this planet as well, specifically humans that have a strong familial tie to the land or the sea. And those should be taken into account just as much as the monk seal and the turtle and the hawk. Like that, I think it's just very important for people to recognize humans are a very um, natural thing. Uh, we're not separate from nature in that sense. So, yeah. Wow. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> um, so what research are you actually working on now? I see that you're working on some work with coral reefs. What, what are you looking yeah. at? Yeah, so currently, um, the wave I grew up surfing uh, here on the Big Island, it has this really, um, we never thought that the reef was very alive, because we're surfing all the time, and it actually gets brown, like there's a lot of sedimentation and runoff after heavy rains. I don't know if that happens where you folks swim, where sometimes it gets really dirty and, and you know, yeah. um, sedimentation from the uplands, but um, in our island, yeah, we what's pretty cool about where we're from is like, there's not a lot of development really. So when it does have these big outflows, like it's part of our stories as well too, like our, our kind of ancestral stories that the water turns a certain color and certain places are named for the types of like um, the films, like the bubbles and stuff that is on the, the, the water. So like the water going brown here is not really like a bad thing for us. It's uh, we still surf through it. it. We don't really get sick. It's um, like right now the ocean is, the coast it's been raining and the snow is here so it's like completely brown you know the river but no one's really getting sick sometimes they do when there's sewage spills and stuff but for the most part if it's the if the rain is coming from the mountain and it just takes a lot of dirt with it um then it it's not too big of a deal for our health but the coral you know we a lot of times when the big storms come and we're surfing the water is kind of murky and brown so maybe we just never really like seen the reef you know we wait until the water's calm and then we go and we fish and we're like looking at the fish versus the coral you know so like I actually grew up or maybe just for me I never really knew just how vibrant the reef is here in my community and after you know starting to study all these other reef spaces and I was getting my degrees and stuff like that I came back home I'm like holy shit like this is like one of the most insane reefs I've ever seen. Like I've been to like Tuamotus and Tahiti and Maldives and like Australia. Like, and I'm, I'm like, whoa, like I don't even know how biodiverse the reefs we have here are. Specifically the place I learned how to surf. I'm just like, like, like mind blown. So I, um, I, I wrote a grant um, to the National Science Foundation. Uh, it's uh, the United States like governing science body for a lot of times, uh, environmental uh, research. And I said, hey, uh, so there's these reefs that are like really good and they've been getting pounded by sediment, which everyone else is saying is destroying coral reef. But somehow these reef are like doing okay. I would like to understand why they're so resilient because I'm arguing that these are probably one of the most resilient corals that we have uh, in the islands for sure, but maybe in the world. 
So I'm just trying to see like what, what affects it. And my theory or hypothesis that I'm trying to test is um, does the microbiome have something to do with that? The different bacteria that is associated with these corals, how are they protecting it? Because we know in coral research that the bacteria and the fungus and all those microbes that exist on the coral, they protect the coral from disease and infection because coral don't have what we have. Like we have the adaptive immune system. Like we get a vaccine, form the antibodies or whatever, fight the COVID or, you know, or you have your own antibodies that fight the COVID, however you choose to stand on the, the topic. The coral, they can't get vaccines because they don't have this adaptive immune system to create antibodies. They're relying solely on what we call the innate immune system. We have an innate immune system too, which protects us. It's the first line of defense against disease and infection. And that's made up of like on our skin, our saliva, our eyes, ears, and all these things. We have these like super microbes that are destroying the viruses. Like they're outside of COVID, there's like zillions of viruses that are attacking us like every single moment. And it's not a lot of time our adaptive immune system that is destroying it. It's these microbes, like these bacteria that are just eating them up and these other viruses that are on our bodies and skin that we're putting out. So like the microbiome or the microbial communities, they're so like important protecting us and they, they can shift and they can change over time. I want to see a heavy disturbance like rain and heavy sedimentation on coral. How does that change? And maybe by studying that, I can, I can demonstrate that coral resilience is real and it's pretty huge in our islands. Wow, that's amazing. What about, could that be damaged by, you know, I'm thinking microplastics, you know, I'm thinking yes. uh, pesticides, um, nutrient runoff. I mean, do you think that could be affected? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of like um, the, the next evolution of this type of study is to, to look at like, okay, now that we see that there's a shifting in this microbiome of the coral after disturbances, like what about the amount of microplastics or what about the amount of pollution? You know, we can start to take more tests around the coral reefs, like event, the, the rain event, and then we can learn more. So this study? is- Yeah, how long is the study for? Um, the study has been going on for like two years now, um, but it's, it's been kind of like uh, behind on schedule because of COVID and stuff. It got all shut down. It, it just started the year that uh, COVID happened, it began. So kind of shut down a lot of things. So um, yeah, it, it's kind of like, uh, it just requires a really good rain. And like, it's me like going down like in the rain and kind of getting like pounded. And it's like the reef is right where the waves are. And it's like, it's never, it's never like just rainy and flat to like take samples. So it's always like, huge waves and like it, it's pretty it, it's pretty fun to like do it but it's like not that easy you know and it's uh Sounds i don't know it seems a little bit more like uh i don't know we could go into like like a pool like and like swim around in a pool and that's super fun and super good if you only have access to it but if you got like the real deal like you just want to be out there kind of feeling nature and getting into it so like i enjoy research that is a little bit more dynamic extreme extreme science extreme science yeah mega <laughs> science that's our that's our lab's name the mega lab yeah mega lab <laughs> i was just talking about the mega lab so it's mega lab <laughs> we're running out of time on my instagram not my instagram my um recording so i'm going to wrap it up in the next five minutes if that's okay with you cliff yeah yeah totally i'll cut that bit out by the way <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, it is. Well, this is going to be our, our New Year podcast. Um, and obviously, as soon as it's New Year, the, if you get an interview, you always do get asked the most cheesy question, which is, what's your New Year's resolution when it comes to the ocean? Yeah, New Year's resolution. Um, ah, shucks. I don't, I don't really have resolution. New Year's resolutions. <laughs> it's like 7 a.m. over there. Give him a break. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, What's your message to everyone out there then about when it comes to the ocean, when it comes to kind of sustainability, when it comes to all that? What's your message to people? Yeah, my biggest message for me, like, like many others, is just to get out there and experience it. I, I think the most important like foundation of environmental protection is just like immersing ourselves in it. Like, and I, I, I really challenge people and say, how can we protect the places we love if we're removed from them? Like it, it's like anything, you know, like you just if you love someone and you're never with them, like how do you ensure their protection you know it's like you just have to be with that and for me i i try to live by that and i and i know other people say the same thing too but i think it's really it, it's it's a powerful thing to be able to go out into nature and just get those sensations and feelings that you can't describe and it it's such leaves such a long lasting impression that it's going to penetrate all aspects of our life and like that's what i think is the the, the deep part and then you can do whatever you want to make sure you keep feeling that it's like a high that you can't shake you know and it's like a it's a positive high and you're gonna fiend you become like a nature addict like 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 me you know and you're gonna want to do everything you can to make sure you don't lose your supply you know because it's it just feels so good and it, it's a yeah would you Hopefully say that. um your science background has opened doors for you in conservation as in to be taken more serious totally yeah totally i mean having a phd um allows me to have a thought that's valuable which it shouldn't be that way it shouldn't just be just because like i have a degree that i'm any more important than someone else who's been in the environment for a long time um and i acknowledge that front end the reality is though it has like when people call me a doctor which I think is so douchey like I, I hate being called that because I <laughs> I'm even scared one day that someone's going to be like is there a doctor here and I'm just like fuck like I'm not like a real doctor like I, I can do CPR and like run an AD and that's it you know so uh, if you're not drowning I can't save you um but I mean even with that I don't know if I, I, I don't know anyways yeah, I think that degrees definitely provide an opportunity, but they should be taken with a grain of salt because there's a lot of people that have self-interest that have gotten their degrees that use formal education as a way to control, manipulate, and you know, self-elevate, which I don't know, like, again, like, I don't know if maybe I'm doing it too. Like, I don't know. I'm trying to be as open as I can, knowing that I, I worked really hard to to show that Hawaiian people can excel with doctorates in things like chemistry, um, just as well as everyone else. Like we're like the degree for me, it was just a way to show like, we're not any better, better, but we're not any worse. And um, along the way, I think people have seen value in it, but it's also too, I'm like in a very small population, you know, like there's not very many, uh, I, I can't be for sure, but 
I think I'm either like the second or third PhD chemist in our Hawaiian community. So it's like, uh, it's like not really, we're not represented. So it kind of gives that opportunity. Like, you know, it's not like, I don't know if I'm that great of a scientist or that great of a surfer, you know, but I'm the only surfer scientist right now that is like, I mean, there's like, there's a few other actually out there. Like there's Iski Britton and Yoni Klein and this guy, Max Webston. I think he's from Australia. Um, he's getting his degree in nanoengineering, does longboarding. Like they're out there. Um, so now it's good because it's being elevated, but <laughs> kind of when my career kind of started getting moving, I was like the only one. So like, I don't even know if I'm that good. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you seem pretty good to us. It's been an absolute pleasure listening yeah, to you and talking to you. Brilliant. Uh, thank you for brilliant. having me. Thanks for getting up so early. Yeah, no, totally. Yeah, I get up early. I just don't talk to people, so I'm kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And we hope you have a lovely, happy, festive season as well. Thank you, you folks, too. If you need anything else, just please reach out. Sorry it took so long to get all this thing. No, that's in, my like... fault. Yeah, that's my fault. Juggling. Okay. No, it's been great. Absolutely. Really interesting. Absolutely fascinating. Thank so you. I love the balance you're trying to strike. I just think it's brilliant. So cool. Well, that was a fascinating interview with Cliff um, on storytelling and the importance of storytelling, which I think we should do more of. Yeah, it was just an amazing bloke as well. The kind of when he was talking about the balance as well, it was just yeah, I found it absolutely amazing. Yeah, he has a really fascinating story, and it just shows the importance of passed down kind of storytelling and how important that could be in conservation. Yeah, indeed, and, and just you know, we, as you know, as he quite rightly said, you know, as scientists, we think we know all, everything, but you we do. don't at all. Don't. We don't at all, and we we yeah. need that indigenous knowledge we really do and we need to appreciate it and and reward it quite rightly so so yeah love what you say definitely but it is the new year and you know gonna ask the question what is going to be your new year's resolution when it comes to sustainability don't tell me you're going to do more exercise and that's all nonsense sustainability we swim wild what is your new year's resolution well the question that i get asked the most is about those microplastic results from the water loggers. So my New Year's resolution is to hound you at the labs every week until- That is brilliant. <laughs> that is, yeah, so our labs in Bangor have been working flat out on, the, on the samples. The amazing guys have been doing it really good. Uh, we have been utterly hampered by COVID and quite rightly, Bangor University's a very sensible approach to the COVID, uh, meaning we're not, haven't been allowed in as much as we'd like to um so yes so and i can't blame anyone for that at all bang university has been doing fantastic health and safety uh but we will have and we do have the results and we will be releasing them very soon in the new year without a doubt and then there will be follow-up work as well so we can eke out the most yeah. of those results that we have well, yeah we're about to launch that actually in the next few weeks in our magazine but um, off the back of that, talking about COVID, I get the second thing I get asked the most is when are we finishing the national park swims? So when we first did them back to back, we got stopped because COVID lockdown. I've talked about that before. And then the second one and swam all of the national parks in the south actually caught COVID. And that took us out for about a good month. Yeah, you so, are bad. Uh, <laughs> you are bad. I actually, I have, have COVID now. Yeah, I, yeah. I have COVID now. Been very ill. This is the first day I've felt good enough to drink during the day so what more do you want on a, on a, on a Christmas holiday? Fresh as a daisy. <laughs> <laughs>
you scientists. <laughs> uh, so what <laughs> is, what is you, I haven't given you my New Year's resolution. So my real re- New Year's resolution is to definitely get outside more um, and to use that time to continue to protect what we love, but to do it more regularly and be more consistent with these podcasts. I'm going to, I'm going to be doing them once. We're going to be doing them once a month. Definitely. Yeah. And if, so if you've got any ideas of people we should interview or if you'd like us to interview you as well, if you're doing something fantastically exciting when it comes to sustainability, swimming wild, all that kind of stuff, please get in touch and we will interview you as well. And what's your news resolution? Uh, well, when it comes to sustainability, et cetera, et cetera, um, it is this year. It sounds weird. You know, I'm, I'm obviously a massive, you know, anti-plastic single-use plastic person totally obviously but i need to do more i really do um we just it's so easy to let single-use plastic packaging just creep up on you um and like i think every now and again you need to reset and you go no no we are really cutting back on this as a family so that is what my my new year's resolution is to really ramp up the plastic free when are you running for prime minister um well when i become completely plastic free um that'll be my next new year's resolution i think and so, i know you've offered me a job there as indeed as, well when i when i become prime minister you can be minister for uh the environment obviously without a doubt. <laughs> I'm the establishment no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> don't make me the butler without a doubt no 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 minister for the environment can you think of anyone better than yourself for minister for the environment i can't and you're what? in power boris so i mean what could go oh, wrong busy buddies busy buddies <laughs> <laughs> only joking only joking <laughs> right have a brilliant new year everybody we are actually recording this on the day before christmas eve with full disclosure because hence uh, the hat which you did not wear so i did that whole interview i did not get the memo like a complete prat looking like a prat there is no change my friend (laughs) but also (laughs) i did i had i i have had a drink and now it's a candle holder look at that look at that please i've got a drink now i've been drinking yeah you've been drinking the entire interview we know (laughs) this is foraged slow gin and soda water it's actually it's really nice actually it's really good metal straw metal straw as well so there you go you don't need a straw you've got lips yeah but it's metal it's reusable it's all good good. (laughs) so there we go right it's been a pleasure catching up with you as well always uh, always have a a good christmas indeed and a good christmas new year happy new year and yeah, indeed. And let's hope that 2022 is a happy, healthy, COVID free and as sustainable as we can possibly, possibly. Yes. Make it. And we have got Ka- Caroline, who's going to be helping us put out weekly sustainable posts across our channels. She doesn't know that yet, but when she hears this, she will. <laughs> and look out for our magazine that's coming out around the same time as this um, with a roundup of the year. Some great tips from Christian and some articles from the team. Brilliant. Bye-bye, everybody. See you next podcast. Bye.